Welcome to the DTB podcast for January 2021, volume 59, number one. My name's David Fazakli, and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, and we should start by wishing you all a happy new year, uh, and the hope that 2021 will be better than 2020. Uh, admittedly, that's not a particularly ambitious target, uh, given the way 2020 went, but as we're recording this, the uh, beginning of December, we've got a whole month for 2020 to try and redeem itself. But I suppose despite everything, we should take some heart from uh, some of the positive things that did happen this year, uh, particularly, I guess, the way that the health service, public services and key workers responded. Uh, scientists responded to come up with solutions for COVID-19. Um, James, you've been at the sharp end of primary care. What was on your Christmas wish list um, and what, do, what are you hoping for for 2021? Oh, I think, um, what do we want? I, I think it's, I think it's more, more, more support, really. I think uh, the big thing that we're discovering is um, we're just busier, 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 busier. Our latest figures show that we're 25% up on patient contacts compared to this time last year. Um, and I don't think that's going to change at all. And of course, on top of that, we're just about to start trying to provide a vaccination program for the country, which is going to put enormous strain. So I think for us, it's about more hands to the pump, really. Well, I hope, you, I hope your wish is, is fulfilled. So um, let's get down to business. Um, this podcast, we're going to give a brief overview of our editorial, talk about the challenge patients face with taking medicines, discuss the main review article on vitamin D and talk a bit about our republished case report. Um, so just to re recap, the, the editorial which is published in this month, we have actually got a separate podcast on. Uh, we released this when the editorial went live uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so should we just do a quick recap, James? Yes. I mean, obviously, um, one of the issues we were saying, in fact, the title of the piece was COVID-19 vaccine. Do we need more than the mum test? And I think, um, obviously, more information has been coming out almost on a daily basis. Um, and I think that uh, the, the general feeling amongst um, clinicians on the gr grassroots levels, but also at all levels of science is, is an understanding that we've got to be, as you put in your editorial, transparent and really clarify what the vaccine safety looks like what the adverse events are going to be and and what impact they might have on people i mean the thing that really wanted to pick out in that was that you know shared decision making and informed consent are, are fundamental to to healthcare um and you can't do either without good information so it was a plea for enough information for people to be able to make that informed choice um it clearly it's part of the, the kind of the green book the uk bible on kind of immunization it's part of gmc guidance it's part of pharmacist guidance it's part of nurses guidance that you have to get informed consent and that has to be meaningful based on information so it was um, just a plea for enough information for people to make the right decision about about the vaccine um, and also to clarify what it means once you've had the vaccine in terms of social distancing and other preventive measures, because clearly we're not going to know whether the vaccine prevents onward transmission for, for some time. No, exactly. And I think that's the other element of this, of course, is the, the vaccine trials were all around safety and efficacy, but that's slightly different than giving you the information about 
Do we still need to socially distance after you've had the vaccine? What impact does it have on your infectivity, the duration of the disease, should you catch it, and the impact on the severity of it? All those things, all that information is yet to come. And one of the challenges for the immunization program is that we have to record a lot more information than we normally do for the regular flu vaccination programs to allow the system to capture that sort of information. And as you said earlier, as, as this whole system rolls out, it's becoming quite apparent how difficult it is to, going to be to manage, um, and particularly the, the concern that will people come back for their, their, their second jabs and, and how robust is our recall system for, for getting them back in the system. Uh, do you have a sense of how that's going to work? Um, I, I mean, there's talk about uh, using a particular piece of software called Pinnacle, which has been used by um, pharmacies now for some years um, to inform practices when they give flu vaccinations. So I think I think that if if as long as that is put in place in a timely fashion, I think that'll be fine. I think the logistics of um, the Pfizer vaccine are going to really stress general practice in certain areas, particularly rural areas. Um, areas where you have a high number of um, nursing home beds um, or housebound because it really isn't a vaccine that works well in those environments. And I think we're all hoping that other vaccines will come online and be licensed, which will allow a much more flexible way of approaching and, and vaccinating those particular groups. And you know, given the speed with which the uh, first one appeared, by the time this podcast goes out, it, we may well know more about um, the second or even the, the, the third candidate vaccine and, and what its likely timescales will be. And certainly as the um, Oxford vaccine looks a lot easier to deliver in primary care than, than the Pfizer one. Uh, absolutely. In fact, there may be news to be had by the end of this podcast. <laughs> oh, well, breaking news. Well, if it comes, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it to you here. Um, but as I said, there, there is a separate and more detailed podcast on our website at dtb.bmj.com if you want to hear more about us talking about the vaccine. Okay, so moving on to our next topic, uh, we've got a forum article this month that suggests that healthcare professionals may not know quite as much as they should do about the challenges that patients face with, with taking medicines. Uh, James, do you want to expand on this one? Yeah, so this is a, a really um, interesting DTB forum written by um, three pharmacists, Barry um, Jubraj, uh, Stephen Morris, and Mike Wilcock. And they, they, they point out that very often medicine safety focuses purely on professional issues. Um, you know, is the doctor safely prescribing? Is the pharmacist safely dispensing? But actually what we often don't look at is actually what does the patient then do with that medicine in their home? And they give an example of um, a situation where a young child needed some levothyroxine and rather than give a liquid form, which was unlicensed, they were given a, um, a tablet and a pill crusher. But actually what they discovered was the pill crusher actually left a lot of the medicine left inside it. So actually the dosage may not be appropriate. And actually, I've had a recent case of a patient who uh, was very anxious, so used to take three or four of her sertraline in one go when she was particularly anxious um, because she thought that taking a bigger dose would be somehow more effective. And of course, what she was getting was serotonin syndrome and actually making her feel a lot worse. So this article is all really about what goes on and are we as clinicians, both GPs who are prescribing, but also pharmacists who are dispensing, 
how much are we actually asking the really important questions around does the patient understand how to take their medication? And it's not just about the complex stuff like the warfarins and the insulins. It's the simple stuff like, you know, the fact that they, this one's got to be taken on an empty stomach, but this one shouldn't and all, all those sorts of elements. So a really nice little um, uh, DTB forum just to remind us of the importance of actually asking the right questions when we see patients for medication reviews. I think what I was left with was, was really not knowing, and, and perhaps we don't know, whether this is a floating ship story where you know we can see most of the problem but there's a little bit hidden an iceberg story where most of it is hidden or is it a submerged wreck where we can't see any of it so how much of these problems are we aware of and you know in your day-to-day -day practice is it something that is routinely touched on when you when you talk to patients about their medicines well i think you know i'm, I'm obviously a little bit odd being who i am but one of the questions i always ask my patients if i've taken a blood pressure off them and it's raised I always ask them, have you taken your medication this morning? And I would say that in 50% of cases in those situations, the answer is no. Now, if I hadn't asked the question, I would have thought, hmm, this patient's blood pressure isn't controlled. I'm going to add another pill onto that patient's list. Now, if I was the patient, knowing that I hadn't taken my medication this morning, what would I do with the second pill? I'd probably not take that either. So, so I think what can happen is you can get this completely arbitrary situation that develops where the patient feels completely out of control now because they didn't admit that they hadn't taken the pill. So they've got another pill from their doctor. So, you know, you just get this polypharmacy which isn't being taken. And I think we've, we've got to remember that patients are human. So you don't say, um, have you missed any pills? You ask, how often do you miss a pill? You know, we know that you, you know, we all know that if we're given a course of antibiotics, we miss them. So it's really important that we don't imagine that patients take things as they should because they're not. So I think it is something about having that dialogue and particularly with more elderly patients when they've got polypharmacy, actually just ask yourself, put yourself into those patients' shoes and say, how, how would I take this medication if I had to take it? Because it, you know, I'm not sure I know myself. So how can I expect the patient to do that? And I thought what was particularly interesting was the author's suggestion that one of the, one of the advantages of, of the, the pandemic and the increase in video consultation is actually you can talk to patients and see them in their own home and actually ask them to show you what they do with their, with their medicines um, because they're in their own home setting. If they're having problems with them, they can demonstrate what those problems might be. Whereas... I don't expect they bring them along to their, to their surgery appointment and show you what, what happens then. So at least we've got an opportunity sometimes to ask patients how they, how they cope and, and just ask them to demonstrate uh, any problems that they're having. I agree totally. And I think um, it's one of the things I miss from doing less home visits was that ability to look in the medicine cabinet and discover that they've got three months or even 10 months of inhalers stacked up beautifully on the shelves. <laughs> yes, before returning to the pharmacy because they've gone out of date. <laughs> yes, the, the, old, the old problem. Okay, thank you very much. Um, now, our main article is, is about vitamin D, particularly about supplementation in the UK. Uh, again, do you want to run through some brief highlights? Yes, yeah, this is one of my, if there's one paper you read this year, this should be the paper sort of papers. Um, fabulous review by... Prof. Alison Avenal um, from Aberdeen, Mark Boland and Andrew Gray from Auckland in New Zealand. Really comprehensive review of vitamin D. It sort of fits nicely with our 
previous really good review of osteoporotic treatment and bisphosphonates. Um, and this sets out the scene of where we are with vitamin D supplementation in the UK and looks at the evidence behind vitamin D and the benefits of it. A really, really thorough, well-organized review, just brilliant stuff. And questioning whether, or particularly looking at how robust the evidence is for universal supplementation or advice to, to, to take vitamin D um, for everybody, uh, seem to be questioning whether we actually have got as enough evidence to make that recommendation. Well, this is it. I mean, obviously, from 2016, we had um, the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition reviewing the evidence for vitamin D, and it had drawn on some uh, reports from the US in 2011. And on the basis of that report, even though the evidence base wasn't very well described in the report, um, public health recommended that everyone of five years age or older should, and in their words, consider taking a daily supplement containing 10 micrograms of vitamin D in autumn and winter. And the rationale behind this was to improve bone and muscle health. And um, basically, Professor Avanol and her um, colleagues just review the evidence. They've gone back and done some further um, uh, systematic reviews of the evidence that's come out since 2016. They detail those randomized control trials, about 80 of them in this paper, and then ask the questions, you know, is there evidence that vitamin D supplements reduce cardiovascular disease or cancer? No. Does vitamin D seem to reduce fracture risk? No. Does vitamin D supplementation reduce falls? No. And so I think, you know, we're getting a much better picture of, of the vitamin D issue. And then I think the trouble we've had is that there have been studies in the past. And the one that everyone remembers is the one by Chapri, which was published in Nejum in 1992, which was a French nursing home um, paper where you were dealing with people, I suspect, who were very profoundly vitamin D deficient, where vitamin D did seem to have some benefit. But certainly all the randomized control trials, the overall feel for things since 2016 is we can't really demonstrate any particular benefit of vitamin D supplementation. And perhaps taking the, the message back from that, that Shapwee study, which is actually, if you're going to use vitamin D, target it to those who are at highest risk and most likely to, to benefit. Um, giving it to everybody possibly isn't going to get the outcomes you want, but if you certainly target it to people who are at high, highest risk and who clearly don't get enough um, light exposure or sun exposure over winter, they are the ones who we should be looking for uh, rather than, than a blanket well, recommendation. absolutely right. And I think one of the things that she very clearly points out is there's been no reduction in the admissions to hospital of osteomalacia, which is the adult form of bone disease related to vitamin D deficiency since 2016, when public health made that plan. You know, we talk about 50 to 100 admissions a year only. One of the interesting things that she points out is that a study from Birmingham looking at the laboratory results of vitamin D levels found they had about 370 odd patients, about 2% of all the vitamin D levels checked were actually high over 220, I think the units are nanomoles per, per liter. Um, uh, yeah, 220 nanomoles per liter. Um, and actually that's thought to be a cutoff 
for a risk of hypercalcemia. So, so I think, you know, we may be actually totally treating and, and the wrong people. We haven't yet really targeted vitamin D supplementation to the right people. And there are an awful lot of people taking vitamin D probably for no benefit. And of course, the problem we've got is the NHS spends 95 million pounds a year on vitamin D supplementation, which may not be of any value really in the long run. And then there was a flurry of interest about whether it was useful um, during the COVID pandemic. And again, I think there was no evidence to suggest there was any benefit or it had a protective effect, but there seemed to be a, a, you know, a regular appearance in the, in, the, in the press that this was something people should, should think about. I mean, of course, the, the, the thing that is being targeted this winter in, in, certainly in England is uh, vitamin D supplements for those at highest risk and making them available to people in, in care home, nursing homes. Um, is that rolled out your way yet? Um, it, it's a funny one. You, yes, it is, is the answer. Um, it's quite complicated. Um, you have to go online and, and basically find, um, I think, register at a website and then you can um, organise for supplementation. And I think that's the point. We, we've been talking here about adults. This review doesn't cover children or pregnant women. And, it's, and it really is about you know, your, your average community-based adult probably doesn't need to be on vitamin D, but those who are in nursing homes, the frail elderly who are not um, receiving vitamin D through the usual channels of mostly sunlight, bit of bit through diet, they're the ones that we need to be concentrating on. Okay, thank you very much. Well, there you heard it. Dr. Kay's recommended article for 2021. <laughs> Amongst all our articles, actually, I think, David, if, but I, if I may be so bold. Indeed, but it is only the first one of 2021, so it, it can it can have its accolade before we uh, before we award any more. Um, and then finally, our case report. Uh, do you want to talk a bit about this one? Yeah, so this is um, this is actually I think very timely, given that um, we'll be publishing this in January. This was a um, a couple of case reports uh, involving hypothermia in patients taking risperidone, um, and it's just I think two really useful points to sort of clock. One is to remind ourselves that um, many antipsychotic medications are associated with abnormalities of thermoregulation. Um, we often think about um, hyperthermia with, with medications like risperidone, but actually they can also cause um, hypothermia. Um, and this particular case report has two examples of this where patients are seen um, with and admitted to hospital with significant hypothermia, requiring extensive intervention, no secondary cause found despite intensive investigations for things like thyroid disease, um, hypodrenalism, sepsis, stroke, nothing like that. And eventually the condition being put down to the respiridone and, and uh, the problem resolving when risperidone was stopped. And in both cases, they'd been on risperidone for some time, several years. By account, what one, I think one was a, an 80-year-old with dementia and the other was a 69-year-old uh, person with schizophrenia. Both you know, had been on it for a long time and then suddenly developed. Um, and it looks, if you look at the, the product information, it, it is listed, it's a rare event, which in, in MHRA speak means... Uh, more than one in 10,000, but less than one in 1,000. Um, and the MHRA have had 31 reports of hypothermia out of 11,000 adverse drug reports since 1993, two of which were fatal. So 
um, I guess there's enough of it about to raise a concern. Well, well, I think the other thing I wanted to, to sort of highlight, and I think this is really important, is I, I think we have a blind spot in general practice when it comes to hypothermia. And I was interested to read that the first case, the 82-year-old with dementia, had actually been seen by their primary care uh, provider a week before and had no, been noted to have a low temperature. Low th- um, uh, temperature. And I think, you know, we've become very fever sensitive in the last year or so, and we're constantly looking for fevers. And I think sometimes we can stick in an ear thermometer and get a temperature of 35 and think, well, that's all right. They've not got a fever and not think, oh, hang on a minute. I need to take a step back here. Has this patient got hypothermia? You know, and with the winter coming on and with fuel poverty and often, you know, patients who are mentally ill often have significant um, issues financially with keeping their homes. I think it's something which we need to just be alert to. Hypothermia is not as uncommon as I think we think it is. And I think, okay, it may well be that drugs can trigger it, but actually in some patients, it's an issue just primarily because of their their state of, um, you know, social circumstances. Absolutely. Uh, And a good, good recommendation. Okay, thank you very much. Um, You can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. If you enjoy listening to us, please consider leaving a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. You can find a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Alternatively, you can email us at dtb at bmj.com. Many thanks for listening and Happy New Year. And we hope that you'll be able to join us for February's podcast.